0: Children are always welcome to stay in as well. We love our children. Pray for God's blessings upon them. Praise the Lord. Well, two weeks ago, I began a series of sermons on the doctrines of grace. I hope that if you were not able to be here, that you went online and listened to the previous sermons. It is a series, so that's kind of a good thing to do. And these biblical teachings, as we have learned, focus on the question, how can a person be saved? Which is perhaps the most important question we could ask. This is something that we want to get right. Amen? The doctrines of grace, as we have learned, are based upon the five-point response of the Synod of Dort to the unbiblical teachings of Jacobus Arminius and his followers in Holland in the early 1600s. For the purpose of this sermon series, we call them radical depravity, Unconditional election, particular redemption, efficacious grace, and persevering grace. And this is how they are listed on the handout that's in your bulletin. Here's a summary statement of what the doctrines of grace teach us. They teach us that salvation is accomplished by the almighty power of the triune God. The Father chose a people... The Son died for them, and the Holy Spirit makes Christ's death effective by bringing the elect to faith and repentance, thereby causing them to willingly obey the gospel call. The entire process, election, redemption, and regeneration, is the work of God and is by grace alone. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, last Sunday, I preached on the first point, which is radical depravity. A very uplifting topic, right? There, we learned that understanding original sin... And its radical effect on the whole human race is foundational to our understanding of salvation. As we saw, and as I mentioned earlier, sin has resulted in spiritual death for all human beings prior to their salvation. We saw how God describes Fallen human beings in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 12. Part of what God says about us is that there are none righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they are worthless, no one does good, not even one. That's the result Of radical depravity in the human race. The Westminster Confession of Faith, as we saw, describes radical depravity in this way. Quoting now. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good... And dead in sin is not able by his own ability to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Don't you love the old English? Isn't it beautiful? Thereunto. In other words, we can't save ourselves. We can't even prepare ourselves for salvation. Because we don't want God to be in control. We want to be in control. That's the effect of sin on us. So as a result of Adam's sin, all human beings are born sinners and by nature they are spiritually dead. Therefore, it follows that if they are to be saved and become God's people, they must be chosen by God for salvation. They must be regenerated or born again by the Spirit of God and they must receive the gift of saving faith from God. Because there's nothing inside of us that can accomplish this, that wants to accomplish this, until God intervenes. But God. So because of man's fallen condition, the truth of sovereign, unconditional election is absolutely necessary. If sinners are to be saved... God must intervene since an unconverted person is spiritually dead in sin and cannot choose to believe in Jesus for salvation. Therefore, God must take the initiative to choose and to save individual sinners. Now, it's very important to say this from the beginning. It would have been perfectly just for God to have left all men and women in their sin and to have shown mercy to none. God would have been absolutely righteous to do that, absolutely just to do that. God was under no obligation whatsoever to provide salvation for anyone. Who would God be obligated to? Not you and me. And it is under that context that the Bible sets forth the doctrine of unconditional election. The doctrine of unconditional election declares that God, before the creation of the world chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of the human race to be the objects of his unconditional, undeserved favor. These and these only he purposed to save. God's choice of particular sinners for salvation was not based upon any foreseen act or response on the part of those selected, but was based solely on his own good pleasure And his own sovereign will. Thus, election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that men would do, but it resulted from God's self determined purpose and will. The Westminster Confession of Faith describes this doctrine in two paragraphs. Let me read those to you. Those of mankind, that are predestined into eternal life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them. Second paragraph, the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. He saves some to the praise of his glorious grace and he punishes others to the praise of his glorious justice. These statements teach us that both election and reprobation flow from the eternal counsel or will of God rather than from the will of man and that both have as their ultimate purpose the revelation of God's glory. God is glorified both in saving some sinners and in judging other sinners for their sins. This is the doctrine of unconditional election. Now, I want to make something very clear, and I've mentioned this the last couple of weeks. We do not preach and believe this doctrine because the early church fathers did, or because the reformers did, or because it's part of the Westminster Confession of Faith. We proclaim this doctrine because it is found in the Holy Word of God. From cover to cover, the entire Bible speaks in perfect agreement on this very weighty topic. The scripture teaches us over and over again that God himself chooses some for salvation and leaves others spiritually dead in their sins. So let's look at just a few of those passages from both the Old and the New Testament. A few of those passages that indicate that it's God who does the choosing. Starting with Deuteronomy 10.15 where we read... Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples. Psalm thirty-three, twelve. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near speaking of God. Psalm 106:5 That I might look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones. Those people that God chose and blessed. Haggai 2:23 God speaking For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. There, he is speaking of King Zerubbabel. But we see over and over again in the Old Testament how God chooses those he will save and bless. We know this. He chose Abel over Cain. He chose Seth over his siblings. He chose Noah over all other men, Abraham over all others, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Moses over all the other captives, David the youngest over all of his brothers. God chooses according to his divine will. And we see that stated clearly over and over again in the New Testament as well. Let me share a few of those verses with you. Matthew twenty two fourteen, 14. Jesus speaking here, For many are called, but few are chosen. In other words, the call goes out. Jesus spent three and a half years preaching the gospel. The call went out to tens of thousands. But how many became his followers? About 500. Because they were those who were chosen by God to be his followers. John 6.44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then in verse 65, No one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. The Father must grant it. Or no one is going to come to him. John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. John 15, 16, and 19. Jesus says, you did not choose me, me, but I chose you and appointed you. And verse 19, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world is hates you. Again, clear I hate to use an old expression, but clear as a bell that God is the one who chooses who will come to Christ who will believe in Christ, who will be Christ's sheep who will be his followers. And then in Romans 11 verses 5-7 through seven, we, we see this laid out for us in no uncertain terms We read these words, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Note that. But if it is by grace, it is no longer in the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That makes sense, doesn't it? It's either grace or it's works. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. There is election and reprobation in a single verse. God chose some for salvation, and the rest he passed over, and they were hardened in their sin. Scripture is very clear, and these are but. A few of the verses in the New Testament that clearly state that God chose for himself those he would save, and he calls them his chosen ones or his elect. We see this in Romans eleven, twenty eight and twenty nine, in Colossians three twelve, in first Thessalonians five nine, and second Thessalonians two thirteen, where Paul writes God chose you as first fruits to be saved. And then in Titus 1.1 1, 1 and Peter 1.1, 1, 1, God's people are referred to as God's elect. Those chosen by God. But wait, there is more. Open your Bibles up to a very familiar passage. We heard it read this morning, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Because here in this passage... We are not only told that God chooses who he will save, but also when he chose them and why he chose them. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. I got to turn there myself. I'm too excited this morning. This is what we read. Blessed be the God and Father ...of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, that is the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I, again, I don't think it could be any more clear. God, the Father, chose us in Christ. So there's the who. Us. Us those that have experienced salvation, those who have been born again, God chose us to be in Christ. And when did he do so? Before the foundation of the world. Before the world was created. It's very clear. That's what Paul is indicating here. Sometime in eternity past, God in the counsel of his own will, before Adam and even sinned, chose people whom he would save. And then he predestined us for adoption through Jesus, to be adopted into his family, to become his beloved children. And why? According to the purpose of his will, To the praise of his glorious grace. The same reason why God does everything that God does for his own glory. Paul mentions here not just God choosing those who would be saved, but also God predestining them for adoption through Jesus. To predestine something is to predetermine what will come to pass. In the Bible, the agent of predestination is God. In his sovereign will, he predestinates who he will save. And then we are the objects of his predestination. So, election of those who will be saved is then followed by divine predestination, a predetermined plan by our sovereign God as to when. And how he will save and adopt those he has chosen for salvation. It's amazing. It's amazing to me that God would choose any one of us for salvation, especially me. That's what's amazing. You know, some people say, well, why didn't God choose everyone? Why did he choose anyone? That's the real question. Because of his grace. Because of his great love with which he loved us. You know, I love R.C. Sproul, so I want to quote from him on this manner. On the matter of predestination, R.C. writes, From all eternity past, God decided to save some members of the human race and to let others perish. God made a choice. He chose some individuals to be saved unto everlasting life, and he chose to pass over others, allowing them to suffer the consequences of their sins, which is eternal punishment. Now, to be sure, this brings up the question of fairness. How can God choose some and not choose others? The simple answer to that is because he's God. And he doesn't owe us an answer or an explanation. But the Apostle Paul writes an entire chapter on the fact that God chooses some and not others. And then he defends God's right to do so. So turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 9. You knew where I was going. Romans chapter 9. Before I read the portion I'm going to read, I want to just set the stage here. Because obviously we don't have time this morning to unpack all that is contained in this chapter, not even close. I will do that as I preach through the letter to the Romans in the coming months and years. But I do want you to see that Paul defends God's right to choose a people for himself and to not choose all people for salvation. I also want us to see that God's choosing is unconditional. It is totally his choice to save or not to save. In the opening verses of this chapter, Paul acknowledged the fact that most of the Jews who were his countrymen had rejected Jesus and refused to believe in him. And Paul writes that this causes him, quote, increasing anguish in my heart. What does Paul do? He prays for their salvation. And he does his best to share the gospel message with them. Yet, Most are not saved. Why? How can this be? Perhaps the greatest evangelist of all times. Is the gospel message ineffective? In verse 6 he tells us that it is not a failure of the word of God. But it is instead... Listen to this, that not all of Israel are chosen by God for salvation. Then in the next eight verses, he reminds us of God choosing certain individuals and not others. God chose Abraham, not other men. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. That leads to the question in verse 14 that sets up Paul's defense of God's sovereign election of some and not others. So let me read from verse 14 down through verse 26. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For this ver- the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Listen to Paul's answer. <laughs> but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Please note here that God does not owe us an answer as to why he does what he does. That's Paul's main point in this part of this chapter. That's his main message to us. We have no right to talk back to God. We have no right to question God's motives. But we do receive a glimpse here into why God elects some to salvation and passes over others. It is to display his sovereign and divine attributes. God says in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he makes it really clear It doesn't depend on the human being. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion. But all on God who has the mercy. Verse 18. So he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. And then he uses this analogy of a potter making... Objects out of a lump of clay. And note here, one lump of clay, right? Making an object prepared for destruction and one prepared for glory. But there's something very interesting in the Greek, the verb tense. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but it is, it is represented in the way these are worded. Verse 21, he says, has the potter no right of the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable and one for dishonorable? What's the answer? Of course he does. He can make whatever he wants, right? The clay's not going to yell back to the potter, hey, I want to be this kind of vessel, right? The potter can do what he wants with the clay. God is the one who forms each and every one of us. We are his handiwork. He formed us in our mother's womb. But then in verse 22, he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? The prepared there indicates that those individuals have prepared themselves for destruction. God did not take an active role in that preparation. And that comes back to the truth we learned last week, that we're born sinners and we all sin. We sin because we're sinners. Isn't that right? And so we have prepared ourselves for destruction. We have earned the full wrath of God that is due for our sins. We do that to ourselves. Now, does God allow it? Yes, he does. He most certainly does. But then in verse 23... In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And so in those vessels, he intervened. He prepared them for glory. Elsewise, none of us would ever come to faith in Christ. But God. And so... God wants, apparently, according to Scripture, He wants His wrath, His power, His patience, His glory, His mercy, and His grace all to be displayed. And they are displayed in both election and in reprobation, in choosing some for salvation and passing over the rest. And all of this, is done that God might be glorified in the revelation of all of his glorious attributes. God does all of that, that he might be glorified, and rightly so. He is worthy, amen? He is sovereign, amen? He is just. He is worthy of all praise and all glory if I stood before you and I said I did something so that you would all praise and glorify me you would be taken aback by that I hope right but when God does something for his own praise and his own glory he is deserving of that. He's deserving of all praise, all glory. And listen to me. We would not fully appreciate the salvation that God provides except against the backdrop of the judgment of sin. If all were saved, there would be no backdrop for salvation. It's just like when you go to buy a diamond at a jeweler's, or so I'm told. I've never done that. But they put down a black cloth. So that you can see the sparkle of that diamond against a black background. Because it shines all the brighter. Well, that's what the work of Christ does against the blackness of sin and depravity and judgment. It causes the work of Christ to shine to the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is worthy to be glorified. Both for his judgment against sin and for his mercy and grace that are poured out upon the elect. He is worthy of all praise and all glory. Well, this is a good place to stop and turn to the question, what are some of the benefits of this doctrine of unconditional election? I want to share just briefly, three of the benefits of this great doctrine. And the first is, election is humbling. And let me tell you something, you and I need to be humbled. Humility does not come natural for human beings. Just the opposite. Pride is one of our greatest issues. Now, This is probably the opposite of what some people might imagine. They imagine that if I believe I'm chosen by God, that I must think I'm somehow special and superior. But unconditional election, as taught in Scripture, ascribes salvation to God alone, not to any merit of the individual. I might think I'm something special if I thought God chose me because I'm something special. But he did not. He chose me for his own purposes. Not because of anything that he saw in me. So it fully embraces the Bible's teaching on our moral depravity that there is nothing good in us to merit salvation. It says that unless salvation is fully God's work, then I could not be saved. It takes away the pride. Arthur Pink writes this in his commentary. The truth of God's sovereignty removes every ground for human boasting and instills in us the spirit of humility instead. It declares that salvation is of the Lord in its origination, in its operation, and in its consummation. And all of this is most humbling to the heart of man. So, the doctrine of unconditional election actually humbles us. Second, election brings glory to God. Since our salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has the mercy, according to Romans 9.16, then all the glory for our salvation belongs to Him. Understanding this fills us with Thanksgiving and praise for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanksgiving and praise to the Father for choosing us for salvation. Thanksgiving and praise to the Son for redeeming us upon the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. And Thanksgiving and praise for the Holy Spirit who caused us to be born again and gave us the gift of saving Faith by which we believed in the gospel and were saved. All the glory goes to God. None of it goes to us. Oh, shucks. No, it should go to Him. And that's why it is unconditional election. Third, Election encourages our evangelism. I'm going to pause because I want that to sink in. Some might think just the opposite. That if God has already chosen certain people for salvation, then we don't have to worry about it. We don't have to give to missions. We don't have to support evangelism. We don't have to be witnesses because God's already chosen who's going to save but it doesn't work that way because God not only foreordained who would be saved but he also foreordained the means of salvation. This means includes praying for the lost bearing witness to the lost and most importantly sharing the gospel with the lost for that is the way God has determined to save. Our God has determined that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. According to Romans 1.16. And that faith comes by hearing, hearing the words of Christ. Romans 10.17. So it is actually the truth of sovereign election that gives us hope in our efforts to share the gospel of grace. Remember, all the unsaved are by nature spiritually dead. And none of them are seeking for God. So every one of them would be blind to the person and work of Jesus, the Son of God, unless and until God opened their blind eyes and their blinded mind to these truths. We can't do that. That's God's work. Without God taking the initiative and electing some to salvation, none would ever believe the gospel and be saved. That would frustrate our efforts, would it not? If no matter what witness we gave, no matter how many times we shared the gospel, no one could be saved, that would be very frustrating. But that's not the case. He has elected some for salvation and so those chosen for salvation will indeed believe. They will trust in Jesus and they will enter into eternal life with him. This encourages us to continue to be witnesses and to share the gospel knowing that God will use our feeble efforts, if you will, he will use them in saving those he has chosen for salvation. This allows us to go and be the best witnesses for Christ that we can be with the confidence that it's not upon us to convert the unbeliever, but upon God to do so. This lifts the burden from us and places it where it belongs. Praise be to God. No one is saved without hearing the gospel. No one is saved without us sharing Christ with them. But we can be sure that all of those chosen for salvation will believe. And that is what gives us the ability to go out and be his witnesses. So unconditional election, as part of the doctrines of grace, helps us to understand and embrace what God's word teaches regarding how we are saved. They teach us that God alone saves sinners and that we are saved by his grace alone through the faith given to us alone, faith in Christ, the Son of God, alone, and that all of this is for the glory of God alone. You and I were created to glorify God and if you are here today as a recipient of God's saving grace then your purpose has not changed your purpose is to glorify him and we are blessed that we have been included in God's people so that we might do just that amen Amen. let's pray Heavenly Father thank you For this glorious Sunday, this glorious opportunity for us to come together, lift our voices, sing your praises, partake of the Lord's Supper together, give to your work in this community, and to hear from your word these great truths. I pray, Father God, that these truths would sink in, that you would give us understanding, help us to apply these truths in our life. Father God, we thank you for the humbling effect of knowing that we were chosen not for anything good in us, for we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were literally your enemies. But God, you chose us for salvation and provided that salvation through your Son, And you opened our blind eyes. You caused us to be born again. You filled us with your Spirit. And now, Father God, we can be your witnesses. We can go out and share, knowing, Father God, that our witness will be effective according to your perfect will, because you are the one who saves Thank you, Father God, for this reminder this morning of these great truths. Help us, Father, to live them out to the praise of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand for a closing song.